Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you to Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hi, everybody. Hi there. We're back. (laughs) Yes. After a break, the Irish Passport podcast is back for its sixth season. And of course, we had hardly stepped away from the microphones when politics on the island of Ireland got turned upside down all over again. Now, when when are they not being turned upside down, Naomi? (laughs) Yes, there is um, a lot going on in the world, actually, right now. Uh, But in the midst of it all, Northern Ireland held a historic assembly election on the 5th of May, which saw the left-wing nationalist or pro-Irish unification Sinn Féin party elected with the most seats and seizing the highly symbolic position of First Minister for the first time ever. We're going to break down what exactly the new political dynamics in Northern Ireland mean, what's behind those shifting voting patterns, and what comes next. Yet Sinn Féin's surge was not the only major sea change in Northern Ireland's politics in the last few weeks. Uh, Something that has been rather less appreciated was the massive surge in votes for the Alliance Party, which made it the third largest party in the Assembly by quite some margin. Alliance, of course, is explicitly neutral on the constitutional question. It doesn't designate as either nationalist or unionist. Their wins in this election would thus seem to represent a voting public who are getting more and more frustrated with orange and green politics, and who might be eager to turn government focus onto more practical issues. To explain what's at stake in the aftermath of those elections, we spoke to Alliance Party Deputy Leader Stephen Farry, who had this to say. The problems people were having with the protocol are present, and it is a mixed bag. I mean, there are opportunities as well as the challenges. I mean, this is the outworking of Brexit, and not just Brexit itself, but the, 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 the very nature of the Brexit that was chosen. So the DEP were the author of Brexit and they rejected all of the softer alternatives that were put before them and, and during the intervening years. So we ended up with this harder Brexit and, and the protocol. So the protocol is like Northern Ireland's um, soft landing. It's something like our, our lifeboat um, in terms of the, the, tur- the turbulence caused by Brexit. We'll also be getting analysis and an inside perspective on the election itself from Freya McClements, Northern editor of the Irish Times, who told us this. I find myself writing words like historic and, and seismic and the kind of thing that gets bandied about an awful lot. But I mean, it, it really was. For me, it's always the, the, the private moments um, when when you see, you know, when, when you realise that, that things are changing. I mean, very early on. So, so the count went on for two days. Um, and I remember quite early in the morning of the first day, or it was possibly about lunchtime, actually, and and... Um, a lot of um, Sinn Féin MLAs and, and councillors sort of came in all together um, and they all just looked really, they, they were just quietly confident, you know, they, they weren't saying much but you, you just knew that they they knew that, that they, they had a, they had a good election and, and I spoke sort of briefly to one of them and he just sort of went, yeah, he says, yeah, you know, we, we, we know. We'll be hearing from Freya and Stephen throughout the episode to hear their insights on the main developments that have come about from these elections. We'd also like to thank our Patreon supporters for sending in their own questions for this episode's guests. 
James, Miguel, Kelly, Lorcan, Liam, John, and all the others. We worked those questions into our chats with our guests and we'll also be publishing the full interviews with those questions and more over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Okay, Naomi, let's start off here with a bit of rapid fire history on this because we did see, you know, headlines, not just in Ireland, but internationally calling this election seismic, calling it historic, using all of these hyperbolic words. Um, so it's worthwhile maybe taking the time to understand why Sinn Féin becoming the largest party in Northern Ireland is so seismic. Now, uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know that when Northern Ireland was created at the beginning of the 20th century, its borders were engineered specifically to ensure that it would have an inbuilt unionist majority, which would favour the ongoing union with Britain. So when Ireland was partitioned in 1922, uh, unionists represented somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the population in the territory. And that was a massive majority, and it ensured that unionist dominance in Northern Ireland's devolved parliament at Stormont would continue. So for the first 50 years after partition, there was one party rule in Northern Ireland. You had the Ulster Unionist Party pretty much in permanent majority. And for most of that time, the first-past-the-post electoral system was in use. That's the same system that's used uh, in Britain uh, still today. And that system made it even more difficult for smaller parties, whether they were nationalists or unionists, to challenge this behemoth of the UUP, the Ulster Unionist Party. Notoriously, of course, that unionist establishment was buttressed by systemic gerrymandering and housing discrimination at the local government level. All six prime ministers elected over the course of those 50 years were members of the Orange Order, and they were seen as leading a policy of discrimination against the nationalist minority in the territory. That was one of the triggers for the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which soon degenerated into armed conflict. Freya McClements mentioned that this still looms large in the collective political memory of Northern Ireland. It really was historic, and I think it was historic for for a number of reasons. And but this is the first time that a nationalist party um, has has won, if if you like, if you want to put it in in those terms, um, an election in, in Northern Ireland. You know, to have a nationalist party as the largest party uh, to be in the position to take that first minister role. I mean, that has never happened before, and it is really significant when you look at at why. Northern Ireland was was set up and, and the way in which the state was was set up um, and it was set up to have a, a unionist Protestant majority and if, if you think of what led to the civil rights movement and you can argue then about about um, the, the origins for, for the, the, the outbreak of the troubles but I mean one of the big demands of the civil rights movement was about voting, it was about an end to gerrymandering, um, it was about equality in, in terms of voting and housing and jobs, it was about discrimination but you know the fact that in Northern Ireland I mean up until the late 1960s you had a system in I mean Derry City for example was one of the really notorious examples where even though there was an overwhelmingly a Catholic uh, and you'd, you'd presume nationalist majority um, the, the the council was controlled by unionists because of the way the the, the, the wards the, the way the voting structures was um, was set up essentially to prevent um, there ever being um, a, a nationalist majority in, in the council. So, you know, say when, when you look at Northern Ireland's history and where it's come from, it it's, it, it, it is really, really significant. And it, it was a moment of symbolism, I think, for a lot of people. 
By 1972, the conflict had gone so far out of control that the Westminster government then dissolved that storm in Parliament. And Westminster instigated a system of direct rule from London. And that was supposed to be a temporary solution, but it ended up remaining in place pretty much for 26 years. So effectively, during that time, all the major decisions for Northern Ireland were taken in Westminster. And it remained that way, almost unbroken, right up until the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. As you know, the Good Friday Agreement involved the creation of a new institution, the Northern Ireland Assembly, which is based on a system of power sharing between nationalist and unionist parties. That basically means that key motions and decisions, including the formation of a ruling executive after elections, they need to have support in both the nationalist and the unionist blocs in order to pass. So things can only get done if nationalists and unionists work together. Pretty good idea, but obviously not a perfect solution. And Stormont has been suspended multiple times since 1998. That's led to further periods of direct rule from London. And as we'll see later, this situation could be on the cards again. Okay, so in the years after 1998, the more radical right-wing Democratic Unionist Party took over from this behemoth, the Ulster Unionist Party, as the biggest party in Northern Ireland. Moreover, the Assembly elections now functioned with the single transferable vote system, and that's a lot more representative of actual democratic mandate than the, than the former first-past-the-post system. So all that to say that for... 100 years, almost exactly 100 years since partition, Northern Ireland has either been ruled by a unionist majority government or directly by the British government. And considering the carefully engineered demographics of this territory, the logistical possibility of a nationalist party becoming the largest party in Stormont was, until very recently, so remote that it was almost unthinkable for many people. So that's where we get around to these words, seismic, historic. So what is going on, Naomi? Uh, Can you fill us in on what happened in these elections? So Sinn Féin increased its vote share to 29% and it won 27 seats. The DUP Mm. lost vote share by a significant amount. It dropped by almost seven percentage points. And mm. its seats dropped as well by three to reach 25, so behind Sinn Féin. The Alliance Party came in third. Its seats more than doubled. They went from eight to 17, so they gained nine seats. And after wow. that came the UUP, the Moderate Unionists, the SDLP, the Moderate Nationalists, and then the TUV, the Traditional Unionist Voice, the more hardline Unionist Party, which... Uh, increased their vote share by a lot, by five percentage points, but they only managed to get one seat because the votes were spread around without being clustered in enough constituencies to get more seats. The final seat went to the left-wing people before profit party. Now, something to bear in mind is that the biggest party gets to nominate the position of first minister. But remember that the position of first minister and deputy first minister, despite their names, are essentially actually equal in terms of political power. The main difference is just Mm. that the first minister is the one nominated by the largest party and the second largest party nominates the deputy first minister. Apart from that, they actually have the same role and responsibilities. But in the context that you just laid out, Tim, the fact that Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill would become the first minister of Northern Ireland here... That's hugely symbolic. Let's take a listen to her reaction to the election. Today represents a very significant moment of change. It's a defining moment for our politics and for our people. 
Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality, and on the basis of social justice. Irrespective of religious, political, or social backgrounds, my commitment is to make politics work. Now, this symbolism is more than just an issue of identity, I think. It also has to do with how Northern Ireland is seen on the world stage. Because it's hard to ignore that the term First Minister, like it really sounds like it's top dog position in the Assembly, Mm. even though, like you say, uh, Naomi, it isn't. It's equal to Deputy um, First Minister. From what I understand, actually, this was deliberate. It was one of the concessions to Unionists during the creation of the Assembly, uh, because back then it seemed like Unionists would pretty much always hold this position. So Nationalists went along with calling this position First Minister so that Unionists could feel like they were still in charge, even though they were holding an equal uh, power-sharing position with Mm. uh, a Nationalist counterpart. That might sound kind of silly, (laughs) you know, but the title does have a real effect if you think about it. Like, the leader of Scotland's devolved parliament is also called a first minister. Mm. And that's an unambiguously senior position. Um, So seen from the outside, that's what the first minister kind of sounds like Mm. to people outside Northern Ireland too. And because the DUP take their seats in Westminster and Sinn Féin don't, that really helped to give the impression over the last 25 years, basically, that the first minister is the top spokesperson for the assembly, even Mm -hmm. though they're not necessarily. Like on the BBC, you would constantly hear Arlene Foster or Geoffrey Donaldson being quoted in their capacity as First Minister. When that's spoken by a BBC journalist, it very much sounds like, you know, as if they are interviewing um, Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister of Scotland. Um, It sounds very much like they're speaking for Northern Ireland as a whole. Authoritatively, yeah. Yeah, it was like, now with a Sinn Féin First Minister, it appears that the optics have really changed when it comes to Northern Ireland politics. Like, If we take that same example, if the BBC wants to interview the First Minister of Northern Ireland about Brexit, they're going to have to interview someone who is anti-Brexit and interview someone who refuses to take their seat in the Westminster Parliament. And that changes things quite a bit. You know, would you agree with that? Yeah, this was definitely something I noticed when I was based in London and I used to be reporting on British and Irish politics. The absence of Sinn Féin in the London Parliament when it meant that when Northern Ireland was spoken about, the most available voices, they were overwhelmingly like hardline unionists. And I think this really misrepresented the reality of opinion there. People got a kind of distorted view from that. And there's also this other thing about, uh, I don't know, an ingrained attitude that um, the unionists somehow speak with more establishment authority whereas nationalists are more contingent uh, but this is a slightly more complex issue i think there's a similar thing happening right now actually in britain where the dup um is still it, their views are getting a somewhat privileged position um the british government is pushing a particular narrative regarding the north's po- post-brexit arrangements known as the protocol and it's taking the DUP's position as though it represents the entire of Northern Ireland. So it's something that's continuing. But like you say, the elevation to prominence of the position of Sinn Féin and First Minister, it becomes more difficult for that to be sustainable. Now, Sinn Féin's electoral success was anticipated as a possibility well in advance of these elections. And even before the election results, the DUP had started to suggest that it might just refuse to go back into government now that it was a minority party. They said this was in protest uh, against the Northern Ireland Protocol, which you just mentioned there. 
But it feels like everyone knows, really, that the DUP just don't want to be seen playing second fiddle, even symbolically, to Sinn Féin. That they just don't want to have to admit this, you know, in a, in a public way, um, by sitting in the government as a minority party. What could you, yeah, break this down for us, Naomi? What's going on with the DUP right now? And, you know, where, where does Brexit play into all this? Uh, the, the endless, the endless tale as old as time. Right. So as soon as DUP representatives started to be interviewed on the morning that the election results were coming in, um, they were saying that they wouldn't go into power without some sort of a win on the protocol issue. They phrased it in more acceptable terms, but that's essentially what they were saying. So just to remind everybody, the protocol means the agreement that was hashed out in negotiations between the London government and the EU in 2019 to govern what would happen in Northern Ireland in order to allow two things, for Britain to have its hard Brexit that it wanted and for there to be no hard border on the island of Ireland. So under this compromise, Northern Ireland stays broadly in line with EU standards and norms and what checks that there have to be on goods They take place in ports and airports on goods that are coming from Britain into Northern Ireland. In principle, this is very disturbing to many unionists as it sets Northern Ireland apart from Britain. And this played a role in how they voted in the election. This issue has been extremely politicised and statements about the protocol are very loaded according to people's Mm. interests. But more or less, this is the situation. Businesses are lobbying to be required to do the least amount of paperwork and compliance as possible, as you might expect businesses to do. And there have been some arguing or threatening that it won't be cost effective to serve Northern Ireland at all if things don't change. Although some of those business voices are kind of Conservative Party donors and things. Uh, But anyway, that aside... The the DUP is exaggerating the negative effects of the protocol, um, but almost everyone accepts that there has been some disruption. Because, of course, look, this isn't an ideal solution, and it would have been much easier if Britain decided that it didn't want to diverge from EU rules, because then there wouldn't need to have been any checks at all. But this is the Brexit that was chosen. There have to be some checks, and there's the same kind of disruption taking place between Britain and France and so on. But according to the economic data, the special arrangements from, for Northern Ireland have allowed it to outperform Britain due to these arrangements. So it's not feeling the same bad effects of Brexit that the rest of the United Kingdom is feeling. It's somewhat shielded from that because it's continuing to have free access into the whole EU market of 450 million people. Um, so this is a little bit overlooked and it's something that's distorted uh, by the British government and what it's saying. But the majority of MLAs, so the majority of political representatives who were just elected in this election, the majority of them support keeping the protocol um, and, of course, making it as least onerous as possible. Okay, so this is really interesting and it throws a really interesting like bunch of problems at the Westminster government, right? Because, first of all, you have this you have this really glaring problem for them uh, if they're just going to have to keep going in a situation where the only part of the UK that's doing well economically uh, <laughs> is the part of the UK that still has these links with the uh, EU regulations um, or one foot in the EU uh, trade pool, basically, mm-hmm. um, which you, you would understand that they wouldn't want that situation to continue because it seems like it's living proof that, you know, Brexit was a bad economic decision for the United Kingdom. It does seem at times that this is something that they want to deliberately sabotage, that like the, that they actually want to deliberately sabotage Northern Ireland's success in order to, to, to stop that glaring problem being so highlighted. That's a little bit of an assumption on my part. But more concretely, 
what we are seeing here as well is a mandate in favour of keeping the protocol that has come out with this election, which is another big problem for Westminster. Uh, because until now, like you mentioned, Naomi, the DUP's voice is the only real voice that was getting through at Westminster. And because of that, Westminster was able to play up the DUP's desires and concerns as if they were the desires and concerns of all of Northern Ireland. But now we have these very concrete results where the majority of elected officials in the Assembly are in favour of keeping the protocol. It does not align with this DUP position. So that the Westminster government is going to have to try and justify what it's doing on the weight of a minority party Mm. in the Northern Ireland government. Yes, and they have an argument for that, Tim. Okay, so here is how the argument goes, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So they point out that the protocol, irrespective of what the majority wants, that opposition to the protocol was concentrated in one particular community. And that that is shown in the election results because there was a swing to the harder line anti-protocol traditional unionist voice party away from the DUP. So you can read into those results that the protocol is a particular problem for unionists. And there is other polling data that does demonstrate how opinion about the protocol is divided along sectarian lines, with generally nationalists not viewing it as as much of a problem, while unionists see it as more of a problem. Hmm. Okay, so the argument goes like this. If you think back to the power sharing arrangements that we explained at the start, where the support of both parties is required for key decisions... The DUP argues that this sets a kind of precedent, that the spirit of this is that if one community is really unhappy about something, then it shouldn't happen, or they shouldn't be forced to accept it. They say that's the logic of the Good Friday Agreement, and that ignoring the will of one community is like breaking the Good Friday Agreement. And the British government has taken up this argument And on the face of it, you could hear that argument and you could think it sounds fairly reasonable. But it's really important to listen carefully to who is making that argument. The people making it are the DUP, the people who were trenchantly opposed to the Good Friday Agreement. In fact, the party was at one time defined by its opposition to it. And until pretty recently, they used to trash talk it all the time. Just think about it this way. Like, there are lots of issues that are really important to one community and not the other. But that's never taken as a reason that a certain policy has to be pursued. Actually, far from it. Like, for example, the British government is going ahead with plans to stop future investigations of killings during the Troubles, despite that being really important to nationalists. And that's not taken as a breaking the Good Friday Agreement or something like that. To look at this specific case of the protocol, what's actually happening here is that it's really important for the majority, not only of nationalists, but also the the non-aligned, for Stormont to be back up and running. And the DUP are vetoing that. So the logic about paying special attention to what one community thinks, that is being used very selectively only to apply to unionists and only for an issue that's politically convenient to London. Their actual policy is that Unionists should have veto power and they should continue that tradition of unionist dominated rule that characterized Northern Ireland's history for like the last 100 years, which we kind of laid out. And remember, they were only they were forced to give that up and they did so reluctantly. Mm. Wow. You know, I like it really strikes me actually looking at this all laid out 
that so much of this comes back to the knowledge gap, Naomi. <laughs> like, so, you know, so much of this is essentially attributed to what we called um, back all the way back in season one, the knowledge gap. This yeah. kind of just a very fundamental lack of knowledge of some ve- basic facts about Ireland and Northern Ireland uh, in Britain. You know, I wonder, I wonder, are there people in the Tory government who are just accepting this, uh, um, these statements from the DUP completely unquestioningly and genuinely, you know, in good faith. I mean, it's it's hard to attribute very much good faith to the current Tory government in <laughs> Westminster. Um, but I wonder, are there some who are thinking, oh, th- you say this is against the Good Friday Agreement. The DUP can say this is against the Good Friday Agreement. The DUP can pose as if they were always there to protect the Good Friday Agreement <laughs> instead of having historically always been against it, like, yeah. you, uh, like you said there, Naomi. And because of the knowledge gap, that can just go down as as fact in yeah. the UK because it's people don't have the tools. They just don't have the basic knowledge to even begin to question that. And I really wonder, you know, when it comes to the opposition, when that's when things like this are being mentioned in the British House of Commons, the opposition don't have the tools to question this either. Just yeah. because they know so little about Ireland and Northern Ireland, it's and this knowledge gap is just all encompassing and it has such ramifications. Um, but uh, something else I wanted to add to what you mentioned there as well was, of course, something that's been brought up quite a bit now, um, since the elections and since this, since this new argument that you just mentioned that this goes against the wishes of one community. A lot of people have brought up that Brexit itself was, you know, the definition of a huge decision that was made against the wishes, not just of one community, but of the majority of the entire population of Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah. You know, so this just doesn't even begin to hold water, this argument. Yeah, because it's not consistent, right? And remember, like, the protocol is the British invention. <laughs> mm. The protocol mm. used to be supported by the DUP, actually. Like, this is, you're right, accepting these arguments you have to allow the DUP and the current British government to completely rewrite history in order to accept what they are now arguing. And that is possible maybe because some people aren't paying attention or don't have the proper background. But like, just to recap, the the protocol was actually requested by the government of Boris Johnson at the time when they were supported by the DUP um, because they didn't like the previous deal that was negotiated by Prime Minister Theresa May, right? Because that deal meant all the UK would stay in line with the EU norms as a default and the checks on the Irish Sea, they would only kick in if it chose to diverge. That was called the backstop. When this deal was scrapped and they came up with a new one that was proposed and negotiated by the Johnson government, they, the DUP cheered, you know, they they championed the end of the backstop and, and the advent of the protocol as a win. And the British government, like, Boris Johnson actually forced his entire party to vote in favour of it in Parliament in this really rushed vote. And he actually campaigned on it and won an election on the back of it, arguing that it was a great success. But now, you know, we're expected to just <laughs> accept a total rewriting of history. The British government now talk of it as a threat to the Union uh, and to sovereignty. And their argument is like, oh, well, the thing is, we never realized that the EU would actually want to implement this fully. And so like, it, it just, you can, no self-respecting person with a working brain can accept <laughs> this rewriting of history. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And also the thing is, right, if, if the British government starts talking about it as a threat to sovereignty and so on, the DUP didn't have any choice. They, like, they had to oppose it then. Because their whole shtick is to be unionist. Mm. That's their defining thing. So if the British government is saying something is a constitutional issue, they have to take it up. So the British government has 
politicized something that didn't need to be this politicized. It's actually this highly technical, technocratic thing that doesn't have anything to do with Northern Ireland's constitutional status. It doesn't change mm. anything about Northern Ireland's constitutional status. It's just like symbolically uncomfortable. And as is frequently pointed out, like there were checks on the Irish Sea before on animals and laws are already different in Northern Ireland compared to Britain. Not only that, but the DUP is stridently in favour of that. <laughs> it's actually really in favour of yeah. laws being different in Northern Ireland, notably on the questions of access to abortion and on gay marriage. Like they don't mind divergent when it suits them. So none of this is consistent. Okay, so in recent days, I feel like we're reliving history. I feel like we've made this episode about 15 times before, Naomi. <laughs> but the British government has thrown everything into upheaval again by making some threats about unilateral <laughs> action, this time on the protocol. Yeah. Uh, you know, wow, like play a new record. But tell us, Naomi, what's what's going on? You're so right. It has happened all before. So, But this time, it's a slightly new twist. They're not talking about Article 16 anymore. <laughs> it's about a bill. Actually, they did do this before. They did this with the Internal Market Bill. But anyway, what's happened this time is there was an announcement by the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, that Britain would act unilaterally, so without the agreement of the EU, and it would introduce a domestic bill to put into UK law that would override what they had agreed in the protocol which is international law. So yes, breaking international mm. law, essentially. Um, this is like a sovereigntist move. It reminds me of the kind of politics that you see out of Hungary. The parallels do not stop with this particular thing, by the way. A lot of the rhetoric coming out of the current UK government is quite Hungarian. Um, but anyway, the British government sanctimoniously pronounced this as a way to protect the Good Friday Agreement. But this is really quite spurious for the reasons that I've outlined and because they didn't care previously about the effect of Brexit on the Good Friday Agreement and so on. Um, but also not only for that reason, but they also lumped in a bunch of stuff into their justification and into their bill that no one cares about in Northern Ireland. Like stuff that's their stu affair, you know? Like mm. they put in a demand to move, to remove the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in resolving disputes. Like, that's a pet hate of Brexit hardliners in the Conservative Party, and everybody knows that. It's not something that people mm. in, in the North care about. It's not part of the debate there. Uh, so for that reason, you know, from the EU side, I'm recording this in Brussels, here, European Union member states, France, Germany, whoever, like, this is seen as pure domestic British politics, just driving, driving events again, you know? The use of international affairs once again for sort of posturing by the Conservative Party. And I think it's seen the same way from Dublin as well. Because this is something that's happened just repeatedly throughout the Brexit process. So, you know, mm. why would it be like that? Well, for one, it's an opportunity for Prime Minister Boris Johnson to distract from his troubles at home. Like he had a pretty bad local oh. election. And also he's had this long running party gate scandal about parties that went on in Downing Street during time of COVID restrictions. So it's an opportunity for him to revive a conflict with the EU that has pleased his base in the past and fueled his rise to power. And there's another um, sort of a nicety of this, which is it's likely also about internal power politics within the Conservative Party. Uh, Liz Truss, that foreign secretary, she campaigned for Remain, actually, back in the day. So in order to be a credible leadership candidate, if Johnson is defeated by this party gate stuff and has to step down. To get into position, she needs to burnish her Brexit credentials with the party hardliners. She needs to prove, you know, that she's 
fully Brexity now and she's shed her former Remain stripes. And the way to do this is by making uh, big, tough declarations to the EU. Uh, so it's, it's nationalist posturing, basically. Jeez, you know, like it's all, it's all very kind of embarrassing isn't it? in this, in this strange way. I mean, the, the way you put it there that this is, these are these quite petty actually internal issues, uh, not just to British politics, but to like within the Tory party politics mm. that are playing out through the medium of international politics. Mm. Like it's very discrediting, isn't it? Like yes. to this government, like it's, I don't know, it's like using a reply all, <laughs> like, you know, to kind of talk about your, yes. like, divorce proceedings or something. It's really inappropriate what they're doing. And, like, nobody can turn off the reply all. And you keep getting these emails oh that God. you don't want. And, you, like, there comes a point, I suppose, where you just stop reading the emails to, <laughs> to use... To You're use so a terrible right. analogy. No, it's a really good one, actually. It's a really good one. Like, it's something that I've heard repeatedly over in Brussels, like, because things will get leaked to the British papers and stuff about we're going to do this or we're going to say that or we're going to do this to you or whatever. And the reaction over here is like, do you not realize that we can hear you? You know, like everybody else mm. hears what you're saying. <laughs> like, But it's only for a domestic audience. So it's very, very short termist. Um, and yet absolutely burns through Britain's international reputation. Well, now, when I was talking to Deputy Leader of the Alliance Party, Stephen Farry, he actually told me a little bit about what he thinks about these DUP and Westminster games with the protocol. So let's take a listen to what he has to say. They're using the people of Northern Ireland as leverage. The problems people were having with the protocol are present. And it is a mixed bag. I mean, there are opportunities as well as the challenges. I mean, this is the outworking of Brexit. And... Not just Brexit itself, but the, the 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 very nature of the Brexit that was chosen. So the DUP were the author of Brexit, and they rejected all of the softer alternatives that were put before them, and and during the intervening years, so we ended up with this harder Brexit and and the protocol. So the protocol is like Northern Ireland's um, soft landing. It's something like our, our lifeboat um, in terms of the the, tur- the turbulence caused by Brexit because. Northern Ireland is a very particular place. We're part of the island of Ireland. We're part of the wider UK. Um, um, we have interdependence, north, south, east, west, internally. So all those relationships have to be carefully balanced, and Brexit just unpicks un- 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 that. So the DEP just um, went ahead and just um, uh, blindly for the implications for Northern Ireland. And probably the final point I would stress is that notwithstanding all of history as to how we got here, the issues at stake can all be resolved in parallel with a functioning assembly. Um, so the notion that you make the assembly hostage to the negotiations is 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 not just flawed, but it's, it's uh, unethical and immoral to to be doing that. Um, but the only way that we're ever going to solve the issues with the protocol is through building trust um, with and partnership with the European Union. Um, to so they will. Uh, enable the UK to run more and more of the, the systems and, and take a much more risk-based approach rather than actually having a, a, fo- a focus more on, on checks. Um, but everything we're doing at present in terms of the UK and what the EP are doing uh, is making that process that bit more difficult to, to build that trust and to get the outcome. So it's very counterproductive what they're doing. And- 
Naomi, now let's take a look at the broader and more long-term story of what's happening in Northern Ireland with some statistics. Um, these are some really interesting statistics that were released this week by the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey. That's uh, the leading social attitude survey in Northern Ireland. It's jointly organised by the University of Ulster and Queen's University Belfast. And this survey has been tracking a range of opinions in Northern Ireland every year since 1998, since mm. the Good Friday Agreement. So it's every year it's really interesting to see the changes uh, in the responses. This um, uh, this year it polled 1,397 respondents, which is actually like a fairly big number considering the population of Northern, Northern Ireland. And it showed some really remarkable shifts. So it shows that number one, uh, support for remaining in the United Kingdom uh, in Northern Ireland has fallen five points since 2020. Mm. Um, so it stands now, it's still a, it's still quite a big chunk it's 48% of respondents say that if they had to vote tomorrow, they would remain in the Union, in the United Kingdom. But that's down from 53% uh, in 2020. Hmm. And then support for a United Ireland, said people who say they would vote for a United Ireland tomorrow, that's still a minority position, but it's up four points, up from 30 to 34. Hmm. Uh, the don't knows, by the way, are also up from 9 to 11, which is interesting. Now, meanwhile... Respondents who I'd said that they identified as unionists are actually down quite a bit. So it was 35% of people said that they were unionist in 2020, and only 32% said it uh, a mm. year later. While those who identify as nationalists are up from 19 to 26%. Mm. Now, you know, this isn't, you know, people disappearing and appearing. These are people changing how they are, you know, deciding to officially identify themselves, you know, which, right. you know, like... It, it really does say a lot. The percentage of people who identify as neither was the largest group. Okay. Um, it it fell slightly from 42% to 38%, but it's still bigger than either of the than other either. two. And finally, the thing that I wanted to look at was that the percentage of people who think of themselves as Remainers in terms of the Brexit vote, that has actually risen. Hmm. Uh, it stands at 56%. Those who qualify as Leavers has fallen seven points from 27 to 20 since 2020. Meanwhile, 63% of respondents, almost two-thirds of all the respondents, said that a united Ireland is more likely after Brexit. Wow. So listen, this is just a poll, right? And more than that, it's just a snapshot in time. There'll be another poll next year and it will probably be different again. But I brought it up because I think it illustrates just how complicated political positions have now become in Northern Ireland, largely because of the various machinations of Brexit. Like, it's mm. really thrown a spanner in the works. It's fascinating to see this kind of shift and how Brexit has been a kind of accelerant of whatever, you know, perhaps underlying demographic trends were going on beforehand, where it just sort of dissolved the status quo and caused everybody to rethink. And it's it's absolutely fascinating, really. So one thing that we can see from this survey and that we're seeing more and more in general is this resilient new middle ground mm. in Northern Ireland. And one of the things that's kind of becoming clear in this middle ground position is frustration and anger and annoyance at orange and green politics because it sees Stormont parties consistently putting their political agendas ahead of the public good. Now, this kind of exploded recently when the DUP decided, well, you know, once again to, to threaten to collapse the executive. They showed up at Stormont, uh, kind of notoriously at this point, claimed their salaries and then refused to take their seats, which just saw this, uh, you know, kind of unleashing of anger from um, from across the community divide in Northern Ireland. 
It's worth noting as well, like it has this really concrete effect in terms of spending that can happen. Like they don't, they're not actually able to spend on a bunch of things that make a big difference mm. to people's lives when the executive isn't up and running. So it has a really concrete effect. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and it's been going on now, you know, just kind of continuously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Alliance Party leader, Naomi Long, actually put it very well. Uh, she she called this a shameful day for the DUP when this happened. And her clip actually went viral. Naomi Long has made a bit of a name for herself. It's a very good public speaker. Uh, so let's take a listen to what she had to say. Yet despite the fact that the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland voted for parties that wanted to return to government and wanted to see the Assembly work, and despite the fact that even those who voted for the DUP gave them no mandate to block a return to the Assembly, we have found ourselves in that situation today. But whilst it is a sad day for the people of Northern Ireland, it is a shameful day for the DUP. Today the DUP came to Stormont, signed the register took their salaries, but refused to take their seats and do the work to earn it. I don't think that that is ever acceptable, but it is particularly unacceptable when people in our constituencies are struggling to feed their families, struggling to heat their homes, worried for their futures, and it puts all of us as politicians in a place which is embarrassing yet again, where we want to serve the public but are prevented from doing so. Make no mistake, the gulf between those who got up today in the chamber and bemoaned the cost of food in Marks and Spencers and those who I represent who get their food from food banks just shows the detachment there is between some people who come to this chamber interested only in their party self-interest and those of us who actually come here to serve. I am appalled that we could not even challenge the person who made this decision, because having been returned as an MLA only a week ago, he has disappeared off to his safety net in Parliament, to the comfy green benches, rather than come here and do the job that only a week ago he promised people he would do. So this is a shameful day for the DUP. By the way, we actually interviewed Naomi Long for this podcast back in 2019, and the full interview is available over on Patreon if you want to hear it. All of this also shines a light on these huge gains, as we said, that were made by Alliance in this election. Alliance is, like we said, unaligned when it comes to the constitutional Mm. question. Here's how Deputy Leader Stephen Farry explained that perspective in his own words. We take a a very deliberate, conscious decision not to define ourselves around the constitutional question. I mean, this is not not an oversight. It's a a matter of pride uh, to us. Because we think it's important that we have a party in Northern Ireland that's not defined by the traditional divide um, around constitutional politics. And we offer a different approach um, to, which is focused largely around building a shared and integrated society and bringing people together, promoting reconciliation of overcoming uh, divisions. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore the constitutional question. I mean, we we are very conscious that it's it's out there as an issue and has grown uh, since the the Brexit uh, referendum. So it is a, a much more fluid situation uh, in terms of what may well be the future of the island of Ireland, but also the future of, of the UK. So we, while we are united as a party around our, our vision, our values, and um, we're also a liberal progressive party as well as being cross-community, um, 
we will we'll have members and voters who would be pro-union. We'll have some members and voters who would be pro-United Ireland. And many people like myself who will be open-minded on the issue, who will make our minds up as of when a border poll is called. Um, now, we don't campaign for a border poll. We're not advocating one that happens. And in practice, one may well be um, a few years away and in, in, into the future. But we are willing to take part in dialogue and various debates uh, around the future of, of the island and give our perspective. Because one of the lessons we learned from the Brexit referendum was the danger of going into um, a major uh, vote like that without a, a very clearly defined proposition on the far side as to exactly what people are voting for. Um, so that needs to be fleshed out. So uh, we're happy to take part in those discussions. And sometimes we'll be the awkward person in the room asking some difficult questions. I would sum up the Alliance Party position as basically, who cares about the constitutional status of Northern Ireland? Let's get the buses running. So they try to focus on, they focus on trying to evade the dominance of that question of whether there should be unification of Ireland, of Ireland or maintenance of the union with Britain. They were formed in 1970 in response to a political crisis to try and present an alternative and reach out across communities. Their vote can suffer both in times of polarisation, when voters flood back to their old allegiances, or indeed during more peaceful times, because their unique selling point in terms of standing out for those fed up with the constitutional question, that becomes less important because political parties have more room to own those sort of bread and butter issues. Stephen Farry reminded us that in the early 2000s, the party's votes dropped so low that there were questions about whether it even had a future. Let's hear from him again. As a cross-community party, we have always survived in Northern Ireland politics, but it hasn't been easy. And if you look around the world in terms of other divided societies, there are very few examples of cross-community or cross-divide parties that um, flourish. Um, and um, so Alliance has always been a bit of an outlier in that respect, and that's, that's, a, that's a good news story, for obviously, for us. But we haven't really made that, that huge breakthrough. In some ways, we were seen as maybe the fifth party in a four-party system. And um, we, a lot of our, our ideas went into the Good Friday Agreement, maybe power sharing reconciliation is what we have been campaigning for. But bizarrely, for, for some, after the, the, the Good Friday Agreement, our vote actually went down rather than up. And people seem to put more stock in the two parties from either side of the divide to try to manage the, the, the new situation rather than maybe overcome divisions. So you had the All Students and the SDLP first, and then they were overtaken in due course by the DEP and Sinn Féin. So we ended up under the Good Friday Agreement in terms of having very polarised politics. So Alliance struggled, and particularly in the uh, in the first years after the the, um, the Good Friday Agreement, particularly in the 2003 Assembly election, the party was only a few hundred votes away from going down to three seats. And at that point, questions would, would have been asked if we were still a viable concern. So we had to reinvent our message um, for the post-agreement situation, which was, first of all, through shared future politics, then much more openly liberal progressive um, camp campaigning. And so we had, a, shall we say, a fairly slow upward trajectory uh, during the century. Um, in 2010, we won our first assembly seats. We had two, uh, two places on the executive by 2011. Um, so we were steadily growing in influence, but our overall share of the vote was hadn't maybe broken it to that ten percent barrier. So in the, in the twenty nineteen elections, first of all, two for council, and then for um, the European Parliament, and then for Westminster, 
our vote then began to really surge. And uh, so we had three very good elections in, in that year. Um, but ultimately, it's the Assembly election, which is the most critical election for Northern Ireland. That's where we form our, our Northern Ireland government. Um, uh, we put in place an Assembly. We put in place then a power-sharing executive. So in some ways, I was nervous that um, our great successes in 2019 wouldn't necessarily carry through to the real election that mattered, which was the Assembly election in 2022. Uh, but it did. And that's almost like a sense of relief in some ways that, that it happened. But also then, um, almost also then celebrating success. But I think it's all slightly tempered at present in the fact that we don't have a functioning assembly. So um, our MLAs aren't able to fully do their jobs. But more importantly, they're only able to deliver fully for people who are really struggling at present in Northern Ireland with the cost of living crisis and health waiting lists and the general economic malaise. So there's a lot of issues and work that has to be done. So any success we have we've had is is tempered by uh, that reality that we can't fully uh, do what we want to do or what we have a mandate to do. Freya McClements described to us the moments that, for her, summed up how much change this election had brought. For me, it's always the, the, the private moments. Um, when, when you see, you know, when, when you realize that, that things are changing. I mean, very early on. So, so the count went on for two days. Um, and I remember quite early in the morning of the first day, or it was possibly about lunchtime actually. And, and, um, a lot of, um, Sinn Fein MLAs and, and councillors sort of came in all together. Um, and they all just looked, really they were just quietly confident you know they, they weren't saying much but you, you just knew that they they knew that that they, they had it they had a good election and, and I spoke sort of briefly to one of them and he just sort of went yeah he says yeah you know we, we, we know there was something in that yeah in that quiet confidence of it that that I think betokened a, a shift I mean see another sort of moment that stood out for me was um, the election of of Diane Forsyth um, for the DUP, who is a, a a young a young female candidate, and there had been sort of a wrangle about her selection and, and sort of various things happening happening locally. Um, and for me, that was actually a bit of an indication about possibly where the party needs to go in 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 the future. To counter that, um, there was another really really kind of big moment when Mary Lou MacDonald, the Sinn Féin leader, and Michelle O'Neill, the their deputy leader, the leader in the north and, and the woman who will be um first minister, when they arrived at the Count Centre and they were absolutely mobbed. I have never seen anything like it. And there was a sort of a a, a reception committee, if you like, of of the politicians and party officers who are already in the Count Centre and obviously all the media, um, because they were kind of Sinn Fein and then Alliance were sort of the, the stories of the Count and I, I mean I have never seen anything like it. There were just I mean I was I was in the middle of it somewhere, you know, and I was trying to get a video and I think I got a bit of a video of sort of, you know, Michelle's hair or something. It was just about all I could see. But it it it, it, it was there there was there was that moment of jubilation as well and there was that sort of sense of we, we've done it and of, and of that that achievement and and you know f- fair play to, to them they had an excellent election and they, they have um you know it, it has changed the political landscape in in northern ireland equally there was the jubilation of some of the alliance candidates i mean i was there when the the, the first um 
Alliance candidate elect- elected was an, an MLA called Kelly Armstrong, and she just got up on the podium and she said, "You know, the alliance surge is is real. You know, this is the thing that everybody had been had been talking about. But this alliance surge would it happen?" And by the end of the second day, um, I mean, it, you, you were you were talking to sort of party officers and things and 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 elected representatives, and and you know th- they had a list on on the back of an envelope of the constituencies they thought that they were going to get and, and where they where they were in play and they were just going this has never happened to us before you know we we have you know we're actually losing count of the constituencies because there are so many of them what dynamics do you think are changing things right now for the alliance party in your analysis Naomi? i view alliance as very much being the winner in a way uh from the brexit um process the fact that brexit was imposed on Northern Ireland despite a majority there uh, being against it. Remember, Mm. Alliance, they are actually a sister party of the Liberal Democrats in Britain. So they are very much a pro-EU party. And I think that this Brexit against the will of Northern Ireland, that, that gave people from across the communities a common aim, a common enemy almost. You know, it brought people together, this really important issue that they all disliked. Um, so it, you know, it gave them a political momentum. There's also, um, those demographic ch- trends, you know, there's that middle ground that we've been talking about. There's a younger generation who like to define themselves what their identities are rather than perhaps drawing on whatever they, their family's ethno social affiliation might be. And it's tied up with the movements for social rights. There has been a sort of a vote dividend for some parties that have been able to distinguish themselves as pro-social rights. And that's, you know, it's something that a number of different parties have benefited from, but also Alliance. And I think also it's worth, you know, pointing out that Alliance has had a leader who's just been very good at articulating this in the form of Naomi Long. Mm. Um, sometimes, uh, political parties can kind of strike lucky in terms of just having a new generation of politicians. And she's someone who has been able to stand out and represent the party and become a symbol of it in the way that they just, they didn't, just, they didn't have someone like that before. And she's kind of given the party more of an identity and a visibility. Now, apart from what these parties did right, and Freya told us that, for example, you know, Sinn Féin were very good at vote management during this election, uh, it's also worth remembering, you know, what they did wrong. Like the DUP, you know, did a lot of things wrong, right? Uh, like it's maybe not surprising that the DUP lost their position as the biggest party. And actually their number of seats could have been even lower. They campaigned for Brexit. They created the situation. They're stuck in this position because their views on social issues are not in line with what younger voters think. Their hardline positions drive people away and galvanize the opposition kind of this has happened again and again in the last few years but they can't move away from all this because of their base now every time they move away from these issues they lose votes to the likes of the more hardline tuv the traditional unionist voice so it's not just that some parties have done well but other parties have done really badly right no other party is more responsible for creating the situation than the DUP, you know, and they essentially were responsible for bringing in the protocol to begin with. They've just performed so, so poorly in really every respect for years now. Well, they've certainly strategically made some pretty bad calls. Let's let's listen to Freya sum it all up. We've been dealing with 
Brexit and negotiations in Brexit on Brexit and the outworkings of Brexit and then the protocol and, and the outworkings of that in Northern Ireland for, for a long time. And, and to the extent people have got a bit used to it. Um, and w- w- when you talk to business, for example, um, business by and large is in favour of the of the protocol, not because they were necessarily in favour of Brexit, but because at least there is something there and while it's not while it's not working in, entirely well there are issues and broadly speaking everybody accepts that there are issues and there are things that need tweaked um but what they want is stability and they want this they want practical solutions and they want this negotiated and and, and sorted out and sort of throwing the baby out with the bath, the bathwater um doesn't doesn't achieve this and and I think kind of one of the things that has been learned in Northern Ireland in this kind of long period of you know, negotiations and more negotiations is that um, is 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 to wait and see is is to wait wait and see what happens and and at the same time sort of try and keep making the case for um, certainly in the case of business what what will what will help in a practical in in, in a practical way um, you know I I mean I suppose the bottom line in in regard to um, the protocol in terms of Northern Ireland and and all these issues that have been that have become bound up in it about identity, about constitutional question, about about consent, about about the Good Friday Agreement, and, and all of this. I mean, um, uh, the, the the majority of people in Northern Ireland did not vote for Brexit, um, but the UK as a whole did. So so it happened, um, and a majority in Northern Ireland support the protocol, not not because they agree with it. Per se, because they didn't agree with Brexit, but as sort of the the the, le- the least worst option, if you like, in terms of what 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 is left with it, in terms of dealing with it, and and that and that that is and that that is not um, the version that is presented um, by the UK government. Okay, Naomi. Now you were recently on RTE talking about the EU's reaction to the UK government's latest instrumentalization of Northern Ireland as a justification for potentially breaking the trade agreement that they signed up to in 2019, uh, like you mentioned. So could you tell us where we're going next with this? Maybe could you describe what the hell is going on over there? And could you tell us whether the EU, does the EU fully understand that the UK is kind of making stuff up here about Northern (laughs) Ireland at this stage? (laughs) Um, Well, uh, I've noticed something, which is that within Ireland, actually within the Republic, a kind of acceptance has set in of the DUP and the British government's argument. So there's starting to be this acceptance that the protocol is a problem and needs to be changed. And Mm. this is by virtue of the fact that the British government and the DUP are complaining about it again. So the very fact that it's still an issue means that it's a problem, which is interesting. In the EU, I would say things are viewed very differently. This new conflict is seen as very much having been initiated by London, a sort of war of choice uh, for domestic political reasons. And the EU countries have chosen to try not to react in any way that would escalate the situation, but rather sort of in this measured step-by-step way where they just wait and see what comes out of London. Because they're aware that things can change from one week to the next. Like, you know, Boris Johnson's position as leader of the Conservative Party has looked pretty shaky at times you know, so perhaps he's going to be gone from one week to the next, or he's going to be distracted by mm. some domestic scandal. Uh, so really, the course of this 
is being set by what decisions are made in London. So the EU is waiting. They've prepared a lot. In some ways, they've actually already caved on the protocol. This is the kind of ironic thing. You know, they changed EU laws to allow medicines to continue to flow into Northern Ireland just as they were before as a way to ease the protocol. And they also offered a bunch of like tweaks and changes in terms of how it's implemented in order to cut the bureaucracy and number of checks that are required. This is the kind of flexibility that London used to ask for. Like they used to be saying, oh, can you turn a blind eye? Can you do this? Can you do that? Like the EU has actually almost accepted a lot of that and offered it. But London refuses to want to claim the win, even though it's actually won. <laughs> you know, and like the the European Commission has said pretty much publicly, like you can have more, you know, if you ask for it. Uh, but the, the thing is, like the British aren't negotiating. You know, they haven't recognised the EU proposals. They've they've rejected them. So the perception is that actually, although London say that they want a solution to this. It seems like they don't. They're just pretending to mm. want a solution. And what they actually want mm-hmm. is conflict for the sake of conflict for domestic reasons. And like, needless to say, this is hugely unwelcome because it's happening against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine at a time when the wider West really, really want to project an image of unity and not to have unnecessary public fights. Um, and like, if you think about the substance of, of it as well, like the UK threatening to break international law looks so bad when everyone keeps calling on Russia all the time to respect international law and respect agreements and so on, you know. Um, and it's kind of sad because like Britain had built up a bit of kudos in recent months and relations with the EU had normalized quite a lot because there was all this cooperation on sanctions against Russia that mm. put the UK and the EU on the same page for the first time in a really long time. Like, it's kind of ironic that at the moment that they were basically had won the argument on the protocol, they instead just caused this unnecessary drama and burned up all this goodwill that they'd built up. At at this point, everyone is pretty much tired of it and disappointed that Mm. this happened. And they they just want this to stop, really. Um, That doesn't mean they're going to sort of like give in and give the UK government loads of things. Um, They've already offered a bunch, but they're just now gonna wait and see what happens and what london decides to do with this um if there are ways to make it more easy for northern ireland they will do it i think they essentially feel sorry for northern ireland they see them as being caught up in a political game and being used as a pawn and they're aware that they never voted for brexit in the first place so they basically don't have any desire you know to make things worse in northern ireland than they need to be um they're they're easy to be flexible um they're ready to be flexible that's a really interesting point, actually, that you make, that the that the concessions that they're giving are for the benefit of Northern Ireland. Because I, I've often wondered in the last little while with all this, you know, why would the EU bother changing any of the protocol? Because clearly it's not actually about that at all. If the protocol is being used as a straw dog in order to create conflict or to get leverage or, or as it seems, in order to distract from, you know, drunken party scandals or whatever <laughs> is the order of the day. Uh, because, you know, what's the point if the UK is doesn't really care, right? The UK, does, is, that's not actually why the UK is bringing up the protocol. It's not even recognising when changes are made to the protocol. So why would there be any reason, you know, to, to make any changes at all? Um, so you're saying essentially that it it is trying to liberalise the protocol because it does see that this is in the benefit for Northern Ireland, which is no longer in the EU. Yeah, so you're right, Tim. Like, there is that argument. And also there's another one, which is that... 
some EU member states were like, don't give concessions to the UK now because it's going to encourage them in this kind of brinkmanship. You know, they they ought to be, they ought not discover that this works in terms of getting them what they want. Do you know what I mean? And also, like, we don't want this to set a precedent for whatever other agreements we have with everyone else, that if you act like a dick, then we'll just, like, give up and give you things. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it was kind of, it was more or less controversial. But there's there's also the other side of this, which is that there was a lot of fear about stuff coming into Northern Ireland with the potential, particularly for agriculture, to spread animal disease and stuff because you, you've got the London government that talks about how they want to open up trade all over the world and bring all these things in and global Britain and stuff and various scandals or like food disasters like horse meat burgers that were supposed to be cow meat but they were horse meat or like mad cow disease or like these things foot and mouth various uh, human and animal health crises started from Britain um, so there's sort of this this very nervousness about an, or an open border there for stuff to come into the single market with the big fear that, you know, EU agriculture, which is like massively important for the EU, could be affected by this. And at the beginning, you know, there was this feeling like, no, no, we need to follow this to the letter. Like, don't give them any quarter. They, If they're insisting on doing this diverging, we need to be so, so careful because like if they will bend the rule, like if they can bend the rules, they will. And we, you know, we, we don't want this stuff getting into the single market. What I've heard anyway is that it's now about a, it's now over a year since the protocol first came into, that was first enacted. And in that time, EU officials have actually been based down at ports in Larne and stuff. They've actually been on site and they've actually been looking at the nature of trade between Britain and Northern Ireland and what comes in and how it works. And based on what they've seen, they are a lot more relaxed than they were before when they only knew about it sort of in theory. And now they've come around to this view that if we could just electronically monitor this so if we could have tags that are just scanned automatically so that we can just see the nature of all the products that are going in then we don't need to have so much um so much onerous checks physical checks and so on this is pretty much could be done digitally they are thinking at this point mm. um so actually yeah they've actually come around to a lot of the arguments that at one point were being made by britain yeah, I think they genuinely feel sorry for Northern Ireland. Let, let's remember that like the protocol is a special situation that wouldn't be offered anywhere else. It's it's offered to Northern Ireland because this is this uniquely difficult situation where there was this priority to preserve peace. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely like zero trust, zero regard for this particular government in the UK. I, I actually, I don't see relations normalizing between the EU and the UK as long as Johnson is in power because he doesn't seem to want uh, good relations. Like he just seems to thrive. His entire political career seems to be defined on conflict with the EU and acrimony. Um, so until while he's in, I, I don't see things normalizing. So yeah, the in the background as well of all of this sort of like op, sort of like friendly options for easing the protocol and everything, which is, which is available the EU has also prepared these other steps, which are if things go the wrong way, if the British government decides to break international agreement, like they can't just allow that to happen. So they will probably reinitiate legal proceedings against the UK. Um, 
infringement proceedings, ultimately this can all get very serious and it can result in, could result in, tariffs being placed on trade. So the end of free trade between Britain and the EU, this is the sort of trade war scenario that's talked of. But this is something that would take certainly more than a year to happen because the the UK government would have to introduce a bill, like it would have to go through the House of Commons, it would have to go through the Lords and the back of the, whatever, you know, it would take ages and the EU would have to go through all these steps. And there's many, many opportunities for either the government in the UK to change or like to change people or to change course. So they kind of hope and expect that it won't actually get to that. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, if London insists on continuing conflict, you're just going to get less and less of a reaction out of the EU because, you know, they don't want to rise to the bait, essentially. Naomi, you know what we are going to get more and more of is Irish passport episodes <laughs> on this same subject for years and years to come. So that's at least, uh, I, I don't know if it's a good thing, but it's, it's something anyway. <laughs> listen, listen, I'm so glad we got all that covered. Obviously, this was all stewing in, um, in us for the last uh, mm-hmm. little time that we were on our break. What a way to get back into season six. Uh, so we'd better get off to work on our next episode. That's all we have time for today. Uh, in the meantime, remember, listeners, you can find us over on Patreon, as always, where you can support the podcast and you can gain access to our whole library of extra content, including the full version of those interviews with Stephen Fowry and Freya McClements. You can find us over at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. The link's in the show notes. Thank you so much to all our patrons. Thanks to Stephen and Freya. Um, thanks to those who sent in questions for these episodes. And we hope to hear from you soon. Slán, everyone. Slán.